Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking into our lives so that we can find our way to you. Apart from your truth, apart from your instruction, apart from your speaking forth or your coming to us, we would not know the way. But because you have spoken, we know the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Bless us, Father. Draw us to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 You may be seated. We have evidence that Father Peter is not here. (laughs) Father Peter double-checks all the slides, and I don't know how to. (laughs) I don't know the program. And so we have the Matthew text and the John text uh, mixed up this morning. Uh, I'm trying something different here. I I usually have my... uh, uh, stand over here on the side, and I'm cocked all the time I'm speaking, and so I have it in front of me, but it's a little bit short. Mike, we need to make a longer shaft for me so I can have a little bit closer to my, my vision here. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Putting you on the spot here. My sermon this morning is kind of an unusual title. It's called The Grammar of the Trinity, a grammar lesson uh, going to happen. There's a lady by the name of June uh, Casagrande who's written a witty little book t- entitled Grammar Snobs Are great big meanies, a guide to language and fun for fun and spite. All of us know certain people who just cannot resist correcting what they perceive to be a fault of grammar. They may say it out loud or they may just mumble under their breath, you know, uh, that somehow, but they are constrained just to correct grammar that they perceive to be wrong and they speak it to us and it's their calling in life. It could be a split infinitive, it could be a fragment sentence, it could be the use of who or whom, whatever. They cannot let a grammatical error slip by. I have one question for them. Whom do you think you are? (laughs) I said it wrong. Whom do you think you is? (laughs) Whom do you think you is? (laughs) And I caught you. Some of you didn't even notice anything about that statement, so that's okay. Whatever the the case, they are they what uh, Casagrande uh, rebukes a little bit are grammar snobs, and she's making a distinction between grammar nerds and grammar snobs. Grammar nerds are people who love grammar and want to make sure it's always precise and correct. Grammar snobs are people that really feel like they need to nail you uh, for getting grammar wrong, and they propose rules for the English language that are mere judgment calls or they defend rules which they themselves can't even explain. And what Casa Grande has as her project is to demystify grammar so she takes away power from these snobs and gives it to us and let us speak and write freely. She says, while it is okay to be a grammar nerd, being a grammar snob is just plain mean. (laughs) So why would I begin my uh, sermon this morning on Trinity Sunday with Uh, a book review like this? That's a good question, right? Uh, What's interesting when you think about the texts that we had read this morning, and we had several texts read to us, there are several of them that have what I would call grammar anomalies in them that somehow don't seem to work. They're a little bit strange. And sometimes we're so used to them, we don't even observe them, but there's differences of number, there's differences of all kinds of grammatical rules here that have been a little bit suspended. And when you look at them, you say, that's poor grammar, But in the real sense, it's good theology. And so you have this contrast and conflict here going on where you have good theology given to us through sometimes a poor grammatical expression. So let me offer to you some of the thoughts I have regarding that from the various texts that we read this morning, all except for the psalm passage. 
And we'll begin by the let us passage of Genesis chapter 1. We're all familiar with the uh, let us uh, statement of Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, where God, singular, says, let us make man in our image. Now that's a grammatical problem because God, singular, should have a singular pronoun, right? It should be, uh, well, depending on whether you have a a subject or object or whatever, a possessive, uh, the name of God, Elohim, is a mass single, is a plural masculine noun and so it should have a masculine pronoun and the pronoun should be let i guess let me <laughs> i guess uh, let us is pr- appropriate to it uh, when you think about god his, his pronoun that goes with god the word god should be he him or his that would be appropriate grammatically as we see it in english but the problem is for grammar snobs is that this passage, uh, the word Elohim is in Hebrew. And the word Elohim in Hebrew is a plural noun. It's Elohim. The I am on the end is a masculine sense, and it's also plural. And so Elohim, probably most uh, legitimately, could be translated gods as opposed to God singular. God's plural is probably the more accurate uh, translation of it. And what the Hebrew people did over the years is understanding is that God, this, is, this word Elohim is applied to God, is a word that they would perceive to be God in his plurality of majesty. And it is a singular God they worship. The Jewish people we know were very exclusively monotheistic. They believed in one true God as opposed to all the gods of the Canaanites and the Egyptians and all the other religions around them. And so they were committed to monotheism, and yet the name for God is plural. So how do we understand this plurality? And so you have this sense of plural of majesty understood by the Jewish people that somehow you can't talk about God in singularity because God is so great. And so you speak about God in the wonder of plurality. Elohim, he is God. He's all-encompassing. He's majestic. He's wonderful and amazing. There are several texts that create for us a little bit of a conundrum. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, we have the uh, Ten uh, ten Commandments. In verse, uh, the very first uh, commandment that's given to us, you shall have no other gods before me. Now Elohim is speaking, God, and that's the plural name for God. He is speaking. And so if you really want to uh, look at this verse uh, correctly, you might even uh, put it together as such that you shall have no other Elohim before Elohim. And one of them we translated plural. We have no other gods before God. <laughs> and so when we think about our true God, we would say singular, you know, God. And yet the word is the same for gods and God. And we, by context, determine which is appropriate. If it's talking about the true God, we've got to translate it God. If it's false gods, it's plural. And we would say, you have no other gods before God himself. Deuteronomy 6.4 is one of the famous texts of the Bible, and it's, a, it's what's called the Jewish Shema. It's their anthem. If you ever go to a Jewish synagogue or a Messianic Jewish uh, church, they will always say this uh, expression. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you have the word Lord, which is Yahweh, and you have the word God, which is Elohim. And so in actuality, it says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, our Elohim, Yahweh is Akkad, or one. Yahweh, our God, singular. 
And yet Yahweh is our God, Elohim, gods, right? It's literally, it's gods, but yet we call it singular God. And then the next expression, Yahweh is one. So this Elohim is one. This, he's one God. And so we have this conflict of grammar going on in this text. The grammar nerds are absolutely correct to say there's a problem here, but yet it's good theology. And yet it's present all the way through the Old Testament in various portions. Genesis chapter 11, verse 7, where you have the Tower of Babel, God says, Elohim says, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may understand one another's speech, may not understand one another's speech. Let us go down, God's saying, let us, who's us? Isaiah 6, 8, famous uh, call to Isaiah the prophet. And I heard the voice of the Lord, uh, Adonai, saying, Whom shall I send and who, shall, who will go for us? Who will go for us? That's God, Adonai, is speaking. And who will go for us? So the Jewish people take that as a plurality of majesty. I remember when I was a, uh, a young father, I had young children at the time. Uh, my children are all grown. My youngest is 26 now. But one of my children asked me, Dad, what's the largest number you know? Well, I was a math minor in college, and I had three semesters of calculus and differential equations and linear algebra and all these things, and so my mind starts running. What's the largest number I know? If I started saying nines, and I spoke the rest of my life, I wouldn't say the largest number in my mind that I know because it just keeps going forever, right? Or if I wanted to say uh, 10 to the X power and 10 to the 9th power, 10 to 9, 9, 9, 9, 9, 9, you could just keep going forever and ever and ever because numbers are inexhaustible. There's no limit to how large numbers are. Uh, sometimes in our English Bible, we have this uh, from the Jewish Scripture and even the New Testament, we have the number, the largest number you'll find in the Bible is 10,000. And 10,000 times 10,000. And being the largest number, you, you have this, uh, even in Revelation, it talks about the number of angels, innumerable angels, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Well, 10,000 times 10,000 is what? Is that 10 million or 100 million? Something like that. Too many zeros right now. <laughs> and then thousands of thousands on top of that. It's like, they're innumerable. You can't number them. And so we have developed a word to capture the largest number we know. And what's that word? Infinity. Infinity. It's expressing the fact that numbers are inexhaustible. It's in, they are infinite. And the word itself is, uh, seems so simple and we're so used to it, but it's really an amazing concept mathematically that numbers just continue to go on forever and ever because it's so great. And so, and so when we talk about our infinite God and we talk about our God of wonder, what is the largest expression you can say regarding God? and his wonder, and his amazement. He's infinite. He's expansive. He's beyond... You, you can develop your very best language. You can have your greatest thought of who God is, and it's always going to be less than the reality of who God is. It's a plurality of wonder. He's Elohim. And we worship him, and we praise him, and our minds are blown. And so we have this ridiculous expression as our children were growing up watching Buzz Lightyear. To infinity and beyond. Well, what is beyond infinity? 
nothing, right? As Christians, we find this expression, let us, taking on a different type of meaning. We were taught by Jesus to read the Jewish scriptures Christologically and with Christ as the center and Christ as being divine himself. And so when we hear, let us make God in our, let us make man in our image, what do we hear? We hear the Trinity. We hear Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The communion of the Godhead speaking forth. And that's appropriate and good, but the Jewish people have never thought about it that way in the past, nor do they think about it now. It's a plurality of majesty, of wonder. And our response is amazement and adoration to God. Our second, uh, our gospel reading was from Matthew 28, 16 through 20. It's a passage, what we call the Great Commission, where Jesus sends forth his disciples and he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And embedded in this Matthew passage is our formula that we use at every baptism, and we often add it to prayers, and uh, it is that Christ said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We often have that expression, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and we use that quite frequently. It's the clearest, clearest Trinitarian expression that we have in the Gospels, maybe in the New Testament itself. And Jesus had spoken frequently of his Father. He taught us to pray to his Father. He frequently spoke about the Holy Spirit. He also spoke about himself as Son of God and Son of Man. So he always, was always talking about the Trinitarian persons. But this is one place where Jesus packs it all together in one expression that we should baptize in the name singular of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So what's grammatically problematic with that? Well, the word name is singular, and yet there are three persons named after the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We baptize into the name. The word name itself represents the person that we are recognizing. And when we baptize into the name, we're basically saying we're being brought into a vital relationship with this person who is being named. And we're also saying that we are declaring our loyalty and allegiance to this one who is named. So baptism has a, a wonderful significance when we are baptized into the name of our God. But there are grammatical problems here. You might have said, or Matthew might have written, or Jesus might have said, in the names of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Or he might have said, in the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. But he didn't do that, primarily because if he had said it that way, it would have implied three gods. Three separate individual gods. And so what we have here, uh, some of our grammar snobs might say, well, let's simplify it, baptizing them in the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We eliminate conjunctions and articles and <laughs> things of that nature. These revisions may seem more correct grammatically, but they are theologically inappropriate. The singular name of God represents his essential unity, the unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Ontologically, when we speak about the being of God, they are the same being. God is one. God is one nature. He is divinity. He's God. So they are this essentially unity by the word name. When it has the declaration of the prepositional phrases of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
what it's expressing to us is there is an essential, uni- essential unity, but also an essential equality between the three persons of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you have essential unity by name, essential equality by laying out of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So ontologically, they are three persons. What we use as a way to memorize the the nature of God is that God is three persons and one nature. That's the formula that we have. Name indicates the person or the being of God and of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit emphasizes his personhood, three persons in the Trinity of God. And it's in the established order that we are to recognize Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're co-eternal, they're co-equal, they've always existed from eternity past. There was never a time when the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ was not with the Father. They've always been together. They've always been equal in power and glory and majesty. And yet we have the order given to us in Scripture of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What's the sense behind that? There's some sense in which they operate together and function in a Trinitarian sense. The Father's name first, as as Father Peter said last week, Uh, I think he gave the sense that the Father has authority because he authors things. And he does have that authorship. He's the author of all things. The Son is named second, and he's often said to be begotten of the Father. What that means is, is not that at one point in time God begot Jesus as I begot my children, Debbie and I begot our children. It's more so a statement of the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. The Father and Son have always related to each other as Father to Son, eternally. That's the definition of their relationship with each other. God is the Father, the Son is the Son. And they've always related to... There was never a beginning to that relationship. It has always been Father to Son. And so we talk about the Son as begotten. And we say in our creed, begotten, not made. The Arians, the Jehovah Witnesses, a contemporary example of the uh, Arians believed that there was a time when Jesus was not. He was God's first created being. And we argue against that in the creed because he's begotten, always relating to the Father as Son, but he was not made. He was not created by God. He's always existed eternally. And so the Son comes forth from the Father. He is the Father to the Son, and we would say He has executive authority. He executes the Father's will. The Father authors. The Father decrees. The Son executes the Father's plan. The Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, and the word used for this Spirit is not that He, pro- that he uh, uh, is begotten of the Father, it's He proceeds from the Father. He has eternally processed from the Father coming forth into the world to animate all that God creates. He brings things to life. After his incarnation, after he went back to heaven, Jesus Christ sent the Holy Spirit. So there's a sense in which in our creed, in our Nicene Creed, we say that he proceeds from the Father. And if you notice in the Nicene Creed, we have brackets there from the Father and the Son. Uh, The Eastern Orthodox Church does not accept that portion of the creed. They don't agree with it. They have theological concerns about it. But if you put it in time, after Jesus Christ ascended to the Father, it's, it's, it's theologically accurate because he did send forth his Spirit into the world. So we believe that he proceeds from the Father and the Son. And as the Spirit comes forth, he animates what God has decreed and what Christ has executed. So what do we have in creation? The Father decreed to create. 
The Son is His living Word. And as God said, let there be light. That is the Son of God as Logos coming forth into the world to create. Nothing was created apart from Him. And then the Holy Spirit hovered over the face of the deep, bringing everything of God's creation to light and life. And so what we have is the Trinity working together in joint operations and uh, in, in unity as they bring forth creation. God the Father elected to save us from the foundation of the earth. Jesus Christ, His Son, came forth and was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and the Holy Spirit, and He gave Himself for our sins and rose again for our justification. And the Holy Spirit ministers in our hearts to bring the seed of Word to life so that we are born again to everlasting life. Does the Father save? Does the Son save? Does the Spirit save? Yes, they all save in their joint operations. Do they create? Does the Father create? The Son? The Spirit? Yes, they all create. They're one God in their separate operations. Let me finish with 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Paul is dealing with a church that's really troubled, a church that has a lot of problems, a lot of spiritual pride, a lot of divisions among them. And he emphasizes uh, in this text the Trinity of God. Now, I just gave you a sense of the proper order of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I'm not sure if you notice when you read 2 Corinthians 13, 14, that Paul changes the order. (laughs) Paul, don't do that. (laughs) We could say that. And he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's probably one of the clearest statements of the Trinity in Paul's writings. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Theological snobs uh, would probably say, Paul, I need to correct you here. You need to get it in the proper order. And so you ask the question, why did Paul change the order? Why did Paul offer the order of Son, then Father, then Spirit? And I think what he was doing, basically, was dealing with the greatest need of the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was a broken church. The Corinthian church was an unhealthy church. What did they need? They needed Jesus Christ. They needed Jesus Christ's grace that he brought through his atonement. They needed Jesus Christ's grace that he would bring unity and wholeness and fullness. And so Paul starts out at just addressing this church that is broken in fellowship, broken in fellowship with each other and with the Apostle Paul. They're a church that is a, they have a situation of discipline that the church was dealing with, and they were broken over that. And their greatest need was unity and healing through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, brought about, brought about by the work of his cross, the humility of his cross. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I would know nothing among you save what? Save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said, you need Christ. You need the grace of Jesus Christ. You need the crucified Christ to be among you, that you might humble yourself and be healed. And once you accept Jesus Christ, then you have the love of God, and then you have the capacity to join in to the fellowship of the Spirit. And so he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working in their inseparable operations and at the same time bringing, as Paul does, bringing to bear the most essential need of their hearts and lives was the grace of Jesus Christ. Usually when we finish our sermon, we do a creed. Our church most often does the Apostles' Creed, which is the shortest creed. It's a baptismal creed. 
And then we have another creed that we often do on uh, more high holy days. We do the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed was worked out in the 4th century. Two different editions of it. There's an early edition and a second edition and, uh, because there was a lot of debate. And, uh, and we recite that. It's a unifying creed that defines for us the top-tier doctrines of our Christian faith, things that are most important to us. Other things we can negotiate and be differ, have differences on, but these are essentials. These are things that stand at the top tier of where we are in our faith. Many of us may not realize that in the back of our Book of Common Prayer, there's a third creed. The third creed is the Athanasian Creed. It's a creed that is much longer, much more precise, much more full in its expression, but it's an interesting creed and one that I want to lead you to recite with me this morning in response there's some problems with the Athanasian Creed, even in what it's called, because uh, Athanasius probably didn't write it. Uh, Athanasius had died in the 4th century, and this creed was probably somewhere in the 5th or 6th century as far as its composition. It represents some teachings that the church had worked through, some uh, arguments and discussions the church had worked through, probably all the way up through the Council of Chalcedon, which was, when, which was in 451. And what you're going to note from this creed is that, wow, a lot of words here, a lot of precision going on here. And I want you to think about not so much that these people are theological snobs. Uh, they really were, felt like doctrine was important and believing the right thing about God himself, the Trinity of God, and believing the right thing about Jesus Christ and his nature and person was so important that it was essential for our salvation. And so as you read about this, listen to how carefully they craft this but also realize that this is the church's best summary of what we understand to be the Trinity of God and the two natures of Christ, his uh, humanity and, and uh, divinity in the one person of Christ's being. I think to a certain extent, whenever you enter into a realm like this, you have to offer a statement of humility. Uh, Paul was uh, dealing with the doctrine of election in uh, Romans chapter 9 through 11, and he's talking about the election of God, and he's getting into the real weeds of the doctrine of election. And how does he end that whole section? He ends with Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how unscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. You know what I think Paul's doing there? Paul's probably saying, you know what? I've been talking for three chapters. Well, he didn't write chapters. He wrote just a, a prose. But he said, I've been writing all this stuff about election. And you know what? I'm beyond my depths. <laughs> I've really gone farther than my human mind can conceive. And I just have to stop and say, God, your ways are inscrutable. God, you are awesome. God, you are great. You are wondrous. I've given my very best effort to put down what I believe to be the doctrine of election, but God, the mystery belongs with you. And so when we make our statement about the Trinity, realize that we're making a statement about mystery. And our fathers, our church fathers and mothers, particularly fathers who were bishops in the early church who worked laboriously and sometimes had even fistfights <laughs> over the doctrine of the Trinity, they offer to us and deliver to us, I think by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit guides the church into truth, the very best statement they could offer us. But at the end of the day, it's a statement. It's words that can't capture fully. But we are unwise not to listen to it and not to learn from it 
because it is the very best statement of the church. Let me offer you a couple words in preparation for this creed. When you hear the word Catholic, don't jump to Roman Catholic. When you hear the word Catholic, it just means universal. It appeared in writings, I study Ignatius of Antioch in the early church, it appears in his writings before there was even a bishop in Rome. I don't think there was a bishop in Rome probably till the 120s or 130s. They just were not organized. It was the center of the empire, and I think the church was pretty much underground. I even asked a Roman Catholic priest one time, I said, do you really think that Peter was the first bishop of Rome? He said, nah. <laughs> and he was a brilliant guy. And uh, so I don't think there was even a bishop at Rome at the time. So to say this refers to the Roman Catholic Church is, is incorrect. What uh, Ignatius of Antioch said in about 110 AD, he said, wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. There is the Catholic Church. Wherever Jesus Christ is present, there is his body, the body of Christ. And it's universal. Christ is universal. His church is everywhere where he is. So don't get tripped up on the word Catholic. Also, don't get tripped up on anathemas. There's some statements in this creed that basically denounce anyone who does not believe exactly as this creed presents it. And I think that sometimes we have statements that are, are maybe overly rigorous. They've gone through a rigorous process. They dealt with some uh, teachers who were outside the, the, the bounds, and they offered anathemas uh, against them, even saying that you can't be saved apart from this creed. Now, there's two ways, I think, of perceiving the creeds, and let me offer this to you. One is boundaries. You can think of the creeds as setting boundaries out there. And if you cross over the boundaries, you're out. If you're inside the boundaries, you're in. And it defines who's in and who's out. That's one way the creeds are often perceived. My favorite way of perceiving the creeds is a bonfire. The creeds present to us our very best statement of the doctrine of Scripture. They summarize for us the doctrine of Scripture. And when we're close to them, when we're near them, we feel the most light and we feel the most heat from the fire. The further you move out, less light, less heat. But it's not necessarily a, a mark, okay, you step over this line, you're out, you're in. It's more so less light, less heat. And it, it becomes less cut off in terms of how we express that. That's how I hear the creeds. But I do realize when we don't listen to them or are unwilling to be taught by them as the church fathers work them out, we do put ourselves, I think, in spiritual danger. And this is particularly true for those who lead Christ's church. In some ways, I think of the creeds as given to the clergy because when you teach contrary to the creeds, you're leading people astray. And when you lead people astray, that is dangerous. James says, don't, don't aspire to be a teacher quickly because teachers are held doubly accountable. And I find that to be a real warning to my own heart. As you hear these anathemas, I want you also to hear the words of Richard Hooker, who is a famous uh, Anglican teacher of the early uh, Anglican movement. And uh, let me explain it to you, because there's some words here that might be a little bit uh, uh, too verbose. God is no captious sophister. He's not someone who's always tricking you up on words, eager to trip, trip us up when whatever we say amiss. In other words, you said that wrong. You said that wrong. He's not a grammar snob. He's not a theological snob. But he's a courteous tutor, ready to amend what, in our weakness or our ignorance, we say ill, and to make the most of what we say are right. And so God is this courteous, generous, benefic uh, beneficent God 
who does not try to destroy us by what we say wrong, but he instructs us, he teaches us, and he makes the most of what we say are right. And with that, stand with me and we'll affirm our faith through the words of the Athanasian Creed. This will be responsive. You'll be reading the bolded. It takes a while, so uh, it's a little bit laborious, but let's do it. Whosoever will be saved... Which faith, except everyone do keep hold and undefiled. And the Catholic faith is this. Neither confounding the persons. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one. Such as the Father is, such is the Son. The Father uncreate, the Son uncreate. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal. And yet they are not three eternals. And, there are, and also there are not three incomprehensibles, nor three uncreated. So likewise, the Father is almighty and the Son almighty. And yet they are not three almighties. So the Father is God, the Son is God. And yet there are not three gods. And so likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord. And yet not three lords. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity, so are we forbidden by the Catholic religion. The Father is made of none. The Son is of the Father alone. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, is of the Father and of the Son. So there is one Father, not three fathers. One Son, not three sons. And in this Trinity, none is a four, and after, uh, after other. But the whole three persons are co-eternal together, so that in all things, as it is foresaid, he therefore that will be saved Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation. For the right faith is that we believe and confess God of the substance of the Father begotten before the world. Perfect God and perfect man. 
equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, who although he be God and man, One, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh. One altogether, not by confusion of substance. For as, the un- for as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, who suffered for our salvation, he ascended into heaven, he sitteth at the right hand of the Father, God Almighty. At whose coming all men shall rise again with their bodies. And they that have done good shall go to everlasting life. This is the Catholic faith. 